Hi, this is John. I recorded this episode a few weeks ago, which I didn't think would mean I'd need to preface it with a disclaimer. Unfortunately, we all realized it only takes a matter of days to completely turn the world on its head. This episode was recorded on February 22nd. COVID-19 does come up, but only in passing. Even though this conversation felt like a lifetime ago, the ideas we're discussing may be even more important now. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. My name is John Vasiliadis. Welcome to Unspeakable. My next guest is a director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. Before that, he was a congressional staffer and analyst for the Senate Budget Committee. His name is Matt Stoller, and last October, he published a terrific book called Goliath, The 100-Year War Between Monopoly and Democracy. Matt, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. I just want to start off by saying I love the book. It was fantastic. The research was super thorough. The stories were extremely compelling. And your case for looking at history in the last 100 years through the lens of the, the binary between democratic forces on one hand and monopolistic forces on the other hand, I think makes a lot of sense um, in context of what we see today. For the listeners at home, why don't you just give us a broad sense of what the book's about and why you wrote it? Sure. Thanks for having me. So in 1936, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt said, said something to the effect of, this was in his, I think his uh, nominating speech, uh, we cannot you know, be half free. We can't just have liberty at the ballot box access to the ballot box, we have to have liberty in the marketplace as well. And what he meant by that is that, you know, our lives are not divided into a political being and a commercial being, and we can have autocratic forces controlling us as a worker, as a, as a producer, as a consumer, and then be free in the political realm to say what we want. No, we have to be free in all aspects of our lives. And um, this book, that was a political philosophy. That's a political approach to commerce. And it's something that um, when I, I started researching as I, I was a congressional staffer during the financial crisis. And I, I, I think a lot of us were really confused because we, during the financial crisis, because we looked at the problem of this collapsing banking system and said, oh, is this, is this some sort of, this looks like a technical problem. Before it took us a few years to understand, oh, this is actually a political problem. And then from that, I uh, started learning about um, this whole history that I didn't know about. And I, I was a history major and I love history, but I didn't know about these incredible battles between uh, bankers and um, monopolists and then forces of, of democracy. So the main character in, in this book is a guy named Wright Patman, who was a congressman from Texarkana. And he was in Congress from 1929 to, uh, to 1976. Um, the book extends a little bit before and a little bit after him, but but he kind of anchors the book. And for his whole career, he kind of fought against what he called uh, um, monopolists, big bankers, and special interests, special privileges of all sort, right? And um, and so so the book starts kind of in the it's sort of the birth of corporate America, which is roughly turn of the of the twentieth century. So with with Teddy Roosevelt. And then it goes through to the financial crash in 2008 and the, the rise of big tech. And through looking at Wright-Patman and um, the oligarch Andrew Mellon and uh, a whole series of other characters, Michael Milken, Louis Brandeis, um, Walter Riston of Citibank, what I, what, I, what I think I was trying to uncover was this, the political story of fighting over, over liberty in the marketplace, over who would control um, over who would control the marketplace and thus our society. I don't know if that makes sense. So I felt like I was kind of rambling a little bit. But, that's, <laughs> um, but right now, I mean, just the, the basic deal right now is we have a crisis of capitalism, right? Or people call it a crisis of capitalism. It really is a crisis of monopoly. So you have systematic um, concentration, cable, um, airlines, uh, search engines, um, cheerleading, and, and this is a function of a series of political decisions, philosophical decisions that we made from the 70s to the 1990s. Um, and we have been here before. It's something I didn't realize. We've been here before. We were there in the 20s, 
and uh, we we fought politically to free ourselves, and and then we allowed Robert Barrett to come back. So this book is the story of that. And and that's something that I found so interesting. I mean, you can look at facts and figures and just see the numbers behind the problem we have. But I think what your book does so presciently is get to the heart of the issue. When I was reading the preface and you just start detailing every single industry that has become monopolized, everybody knows airlines have become monopolized. A lot of people know cable has become monopolized, but peanut butter is monopolized. Like you said, cheerleading is monopolized. It literally, in that moment, it felt like I was, uh, the, the walls were closing in. It was like a very uh, intense experience that really details just how intentional the shift of power from regular people to uh, corporations has been in the last you know four decades. I do want to ask you, you invoke a ton of very transformative figures in American politics, FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, Brandeis, but your it seems like your central character is Wright Patman. I'm just curious why. He, he's an obscure Texas congressman. What about him makes him the central character of this book? Well, I think he was really important, first of all. I think he really, so, uh, but I, you know, I learned of Patman, so during the during the financial crisis, you know, things kept blowing up, and um, and then nobody knew why or what was what was happening. Uh, so the lobbies didn't know, Treasury didn't know, Fed, the Fed didn't know, the bankers didn't know, because the system was collapsing and they, they hadn't paid attention to it. But but one person who did was this old economist named Jane Darista. So she was in her 70s, and, um, and I, I, I encountered her, and then we started talking. She, she started teaching me about finance. She'd be like, oh, that market's going to blow up, and then it did. She's like, oh, that derivatives thing's going to blow up, and then it did. And then eventually I was like, how did you know that this is what's happening? And she, she was like, well, I worked for this guy in the, in the 70s named Wright Patman, who was the chair of the banking committee, and he had fought to, to kind of keep the guardrails on finance that had been put there in the 30s, and then when they got pulled off and I saw them get pulled off, um, I knew what was going to happen. I knew what they were established for, right? And I was, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I didn't think much of it. Uh, but she kept trying to get me interested in Patman. She's like, he impeached Andrew Mellon in 1932. He was the first Democrat to investigate Nixon in 72. Um, he had all these incredible, you know, he was fighting with Citibank, which was deregulating the banking system in the 50s and 60s, like way, way earlier than we imagined. Wow. And, but I didn't think much of it. And, uh, but a few years later, uh, I read a book on monopolies and chain stores. And one of the arguments of the book was that in the 1970s, the there was a law that was designed to prevent chain stores. It was a law against what's called predatory pricing. And predatory pricing is sort of the key to any chain store, Walmart, uh, Staples, Amazon, whatever. And this law was removed in the 70s. And the law was called the Robinson-Patman Act. Okay. And I was like, wait a second, Patman, that's that same guy that Jane told me about. So then I looked and he had put, he had fought the Walmart of its day, which was A&P, the A&P supermarket, which was very predatory in the 1920s and 30s, and he passed this law. And so I was like, wait a second. So this guy fought big banks, right, in the, as the chair of the banking committee in the 60s and 70s. And then he fought chain stores in the 30s and monopolies. And then, in that, and then she, you know, so I went back to Jane, I was like, tell me more. She's like, oh, and then in 1975, this new generation of uh, Democrats, the Watergate babies, the people elected after Watergate, basically it was Bill Clinton's generation. He he didn't he that was his first race. He didn't win, but he nearly won. right. Um, they got rid of it. Then this this kind of like coup, this bloodletting of the old order. Um, and I and I had been trying to figure out when did the Democrats uh, go bad? What happened? Right. And it was at that. And I was like, wait a second, that wait. So so was the the Watergate babies that overthrew him. And he had this incredible career, um, really holding together Glass-Steagall almost single-handedly and fighting for the middle class before FDR um, actually won uh, the presidency. Wright Patman had gone after Andrew Mellon with a giant, with a giant like kind of protest, Occupy Wall, Wall Street-style protest called the Bonus Army, really laid the foundation for the New Deal. And and he's Southern too, right? So he also like in the fifties voted for segregation, right? So right. this is like a, this is a. You know the story here is not simple, and it's like it makes a lot more sense. And when you actually start to look at the the institutions that I saw lying around in in two thousand and eight nine, I was like, oh, this actually explains what what where why these institutions are where they are and what happened. So it was really the overthrow of Patman, 
And then I did a bunch of research and I was like, oh, that was an ideological overturning of the New Deal. That's when it happened, like right, right there. So Patman, um, you know, any history, you're just you're choosing what story to write. But Patman, both because of what he did and because of what he represented, both the defeat of Mellon and also the um, his later defeat in the 70s, really told the story of the New Deal as kind of a gang fight between these forces, right? So that's why I focused on him. But also, he was really important. I mean, he, he did, you know, without him, the history would have looked very different. My question is, why do you think that his sudden ouster by the Watergate babies happened so swiftly? Like, what were the historical events that set up that dramatic uh, removal of this transformative figure that fought corporate power for from the 30s to the 70s? Yeah, and, and Patman was also, you know, he had learned from Louis Brandeis, right? And and Brandeis was, you know, you go back, he had learned from the populists in the 1880s and 90s. You could take, pull this back to, to Thomas Jefferson, right? So Patman was also the keeper of this whole tradition, right, that goes back to the founding of the country. Um, so the defeat of Patman was far more kind of profound than just like the defeat of one random congressman. Right. It was the, the defeat of a whole ideology. And the, the way it happened... And one of the one of the interesting things about coming out with this book, Goliath. So I'm a left wing Democrat, but uh, but the book, you know, conservatives really like the book, or a lot of conservatives really like it, um, and uh, a lot of them don't. But Reagan's <laughs> FTC had reviewed it; he was not happy. Well, I will say, even even as I was reading it, in a great way, I was not sure of your political leanings. I knew you were a congressional staffer, but you wrote it in such a way that. Um, presented the facts. It wasn't between right or left. It was literally solely between democracy and monopoly, which I really appreciated. Yeah. And the thing about monopoly is monopolies, being a monopoly means having control over a market or multiple markets, right? And a monopoly is a private government. And that's why a lot of conservatives don't know what to do with monopolies because they don't like, they're suspicious of governments, they're suspicious of concentrations of power. When you have a private government, a private concentration of power, they get similarly suspicious. So right. Mark Zuckerberg said, you know, there's a quote, Facebook is more like a, uh, a government than a business. We're really setting policies. And he's right. trying to set up his own currency. He's trying to set up a Supreme Court. Like these are not things that, that companies, ordinary companies do, right? He is, he is running uh, an attempt at, uh, he's regulating the social media market. And that's true with, with, uh, with kind of any monopoly. So it, it brings to the fore kind of like weird instincts among conservatives. But what I was going to say is a lot of conservatives don't like this, this book because they, they perceive it as, as anti-capitalist. Um, but a lot of people on the left really don't like it, right? Right, because the book is—I mean, you know—a lot of business people do. It's—it's it's gotten a weird and interesting reception. A lot of military guys like it, right? Interesting. Because it's, um, what um, what you find is that um, uh, there is a—I um, put the blame for what happened, or I describe what happened—the embrace of corporate power as both a left-wing and a right-wing phenomenon. Right. So I think there's a there are too many. Um, arguments like in our kind of partisan world where they're saying, oh, it's all the Republicans fault or, or it's all the Democrats fault or the right wing has this giant conspiracy and the, or the, you know, whatever you want to say. And like, I actually believe that ideas are really important. And what I found, and I couldn't figure out for a really long time how the, why the Democrats went, you know, kind of went in the wrong direction. And like, there's this argument, oh, Obama was stopped by the Republicans. And I've heard that for decades, you know, the, you know, Oh, Bush went to war. It wasn't the Democrats that also voted for it. It's like it's right. it's people want to avoid taking responsibility for our own actions. Um, and what I found was that that there were there were two intellectual uh, strands, and one was on the on the right, which I think people understand. It's called the Chicago School, the University of Chicago Law and Economics Movement. And there's a chapter in here, chapter nine, on how Robert Bork and Aaron Director and Milton Friedman how they kind of invented a whole series of tools to bring back robber barons, and that's the kind of standard conservative movement conspiracy story which is true mm -hmm. but the piece that i add is that there was another movement that opened the door for this and this was the corporatists on the left so these were kind of quasi marxists um that you could trace back to teddy roosevelt and uh walter Lippmann, uh, well early walter Lippmann, um and thurston Veblen. uh but in the 1950s 40s and 50s they were represented by john kenneth galbraith and um c wright mills and Richard Hofstadter, who are, who are historians and economists and sociologists who made the argument that corporations were, um, were just natural, that big business was natural, 
that right. um, all the kind of battles that had taken place between railroads and um, and farmers in the 1880s and 90s were not they were they were kind of fake. What really happened is that a bunch of farmers were, um, you know, they were just upset that there were immigrants. So they pretended to care about farmers and bankers and J.P. Morgan, but really they were just white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that were upset that there were Catholics immigrating right. or whatever, right? And that's very much like a hashtag I'm with her frame, <laughs> right? When I was reading Hofstetter's work, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the Hillary Clinton campaign, right? And um, and it was so, it's, it's amazing to have like the political power of, of corporations and banks just kind of written out of politics. Right. And that's what happened in the 50s and 60s. The politics, so John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a book in 58 called The called the affluent society and his argument was we no longer have to worry about private power corporations because they they are just natural um inevitable a lot of what you hear with like you know globalization and technology it's just inevitable right, right. you hear that synonymous stuff, right? with progress right yeah. and did thomas friedman right? right that same thing that was galbraith in the 50s um so he was he was saying now we the challenge of politics is how to distribute the bounty the affluence right, right? and so what we need to do is have redistribution, like tax and spend, or maybe you know environmentalism, or or kind of more money spent on art or parks or whatever. That was the politics that he organized. And then in the 1960s, the counterculture grabbed that kind of political um, economy analysis they took from Galbraith, right? Because mm -hmm. Galbraith was against the Vietnam War, very courageous in a lot of ways, right? And from Hofstetter and from C. Wright Mills, this sort of the new left. And in the 70s, they became the consumer rights movement. And so the left changed our conception of who we are from citizen to consumer. And that was the fundamental moment of realignment. Because when, when you had this new generation, the baby boomer generation, which was giant, and they came into politics in the 1970s and they said, we don't care about big banks or corporations. That doesn't matter. We care about you know, civil rights and we care about environmentalism and we care about consumer rights. We don't care if it's a big business or a small business. All business is either is, is right. bad. Um, then uh, that's when, you know, you saw these people in 1975, you know, they get into Congress. There's this old dude, Wright Patman, who's running the banking committee, who's like fought, you know, the KKK, fought against um, Andrew Mellon, um, you know, was the first guy to investigate Nixon, like somebody who's like a progressive and a populist. They know, yeah. you know who he is. And then, but, but they were all just there and like the liberals were just like, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Right. Right. And so it's just like, they did, they didn't care. They didn't see any, um, any reason to care about any of that stuff. And so then they overthrow Patman, Patman dies. And then all of a sudden, you know, New York city goes bankrupt in 75. Um, and you have like a whole series of banking problems and inflation. It's basically a whole series of financial crises in the 1970s. And these young, um, the, the sort of the liberals, the, the Watergate babies have no idea what to do. Because right. they haven't thought about political economy. They've been taught that America just produces an endless number of goods and services and jobs. That we're just an affluent society. Right. And so what do they do? They run into the arms of the Chicago School. Because those are the only people who have actually been thinking about the micro foundations of the economy. About corporations right. and banks. And so in the 1980s, you see both deregulation. Or Carter starts the deregulation trend. Um, but you see... Uh, you know, you see deregulation, you see corporate concentration, and it's like the worst of both conservative and liberal worlds because you have corporate concentration, a whole set of merger booms in the in the 80s. But then on the consumer rights side, you have the explosion of the shopping mall and the right. chain store, right? Low prices. So that's um, well, that's another piece of this is that like so much of the consumer rights frame was about replacing the idea of um, power private power, concentrations of power with just low prices. Right. So who cares if you get rid of 10,000 locally owned stores and replace them with a Walmart if Walmart um, brings everyday low prices, right? That's their slogan. And that's very right. much what, you know, Robert Bork, the Chicago school, that's what they believed in. They were just like, who cares about power and competition? We care about price. And you see that kind of critique play out even today. Like take uh, like a Ben Shapiro, for example, every time... Uh, somebody goes after like a billionaire like Michael Bloomberg, his right. response is, this man has uh, created products right. for millions of people right. at efficient costs, but it's a very myopic lens to view the world and of just people as consumers first. Right. I mean, it, it, it gets... The most extreme version is when you're talking about companies that don't even charge money. So Google and Facebook, right? They have what's called zero price tools. And... 
so they say, oh, well, we've, we've created all of these tools that you can use for free, for no monetary cost. And the antitrust laws in our regulatory um, systems would have absorbed Bork's framework, sometimes through changing the laws and regulations, but more often by just changing the interpretation of how we enforce. Amazon, Google, Facebook are invisible to our antitrust laws now because of this interpretation. Right. And, and Ben Shapiro uses that. But, but you also see people, you see people on the right and the left kind of not seeing, um, not seeing power because they only see price. And I'll tell you, you know, what we're, what we're dealing with now um, is a complete supply chain breakdown because of the coronavirus, right? Because, and the reason that we're in a situation where we have such dependencies of our supply chain in China, uh, and so there's, our supply chains are so consolidated, is because of this philosophy. Because they said, well, if our antibiotics are two cents cheaper in right. China because you have a state capitalist willing to subsidize them, then, then we'll offshore it all. And they didn't understand problems of equity or justice or even basic things like hidden risk. Um, or resiliency. Right. So you saw this, like that's why you 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 know what we're gonna what we're experiencing now with supply chains is the same thing that we were experiencing prior to the financial crisis, where you saw all of this hidden risk pooling up in too big to fail banks, and they said, ah, oh, what's the problem? These banks are, they pretended they were efficient and what, but really right. what they were doing is they were hiding risk, and that's what you're seeing across the economy. It's and people like Ben Shapiro are enabling that, right? right? Because they just choose to not see power. And I mean, at the end of the day, too, it's like, at least to me, the if the metric of the economy, the North Star is hyper efficiency, that comes at a cost of dignity and agency for regular people. I mean, there's just no comparison of uh, somebody who's in a small town in a rural community who works for a small business as opposed to a conglomerate like Walmart. I mean, that's just a very different existence, but it's something that isn't super tangible, which I think your book gets to. You mentioned that uh, there's a sameness of chain stores. Yeah, I mean, look, it, 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 Walmart um, is associated with, an increase in Walmart is associated with an increase in obesity. Right, because they they sell things that are um, have more sugar, right? And um, so there there is a and you know it's going to get real tangible now how it depend you know how consolidation is harmful. I mean, when stuff stops showing up in stores, right? So Boeing consolidating the aerospace industry and then ruining it, it's pretty tangible, right? It's just that the the too big a fail crash in during the financial crisis, pretty tangible. It's just that you're pushing the risk off in a way that you don't see it until you see it right right so um but i think in like a lot of communities and i think this is why there was so much anger um leading to trump winning because trump trump people look at it and they're like oh he's authoritarian and a racist really what he is is a reaction to the incompetence and corruption of george bush right right in the republican party they got rid of their their bushies their neoliberals and put this guy on the you know in charge um you know, and not to say the racism and all that, all that stuff is true. But right. Like the the, um, the what drive. was driving it was I, George Bush was racist too. Like it's not like this was a bad guy, right? Um, like they're all a bunch of racists, right? It's just the question was not all of it, but like, but the, that that was what was driving a lot. It was of really this. a war against the experts in in Washington. Yeah, they were the coastal they were, elites. They were embarrassed yeah. uh, and angry um, in the two thousand, starting really in two thousand six onward, at Bush being an incompetent like. Can I curse, by the way? Yeah, of course. They were angry he was an incompetent fuck-up. Like, with <laughs> Katrina, with the war in Iraq, with the financial crisis. And then what, what happened is they saw that the establishment was not going to admit they did anything wrong. China. China came in and just pillaged America in, in the 2000s. So they put up Mitt Romney in 2012. Right. And that's when people were like, oh, fuck this. Like, we got to break from that. And so you're seeing that you saw that in, 20, um, in, in 2016 on the right. On the left, you know, you see the same thing with Bernie Sanders. I forgot where I was where I was going, but well, but that well, that's that brings a really interesting uh, topic, which is a lot of your book does deal with the past and with history as a mirror. So we have the nineteen twenty nine crash. We have the thirties. You describe the Hoover administration as just completely refusing to act because they're strangled by their their own ideology, and then. FDR comes along and fills the vacuum in a sense. My question is, 
in, if we take 2009 as a, uh, you know, parallel to that, it doesn't seem like it played out in, a, in the same way. Are we in uncharted territory in terms of living in the aftermath of a recession? Uh, yes, we are, but we always are. I mean, at the dark days of the Civil War, we were in uncharted territory. And this is, you know, during the Great Depression, uh, it was really scary because that was when Hitler was rising in Germany and people did think about overthrowing government. Um, so, you know, we've been here before, right? Usually we figured it out or we did Jim Crow. I hope we figured it out. <laughs> um, all right. Um, so this is Herbert Hoover. Uh, Hoover during the Depression. Hoover worked 18-hour days but could not shake his deep-seated belief that the crisis was simply one of confidence, not problems in the banking system run by those he felt sh he should rule. Even as reporters he knew were going broke and pleading for help, every evening Hoover sat down to a black-tie dinner and had a complete seven-course meal. Hoover knew this seemed callous, but he feared that not indulging would signal a lack of belief on his part in the imminent return of prosperity. Towards the end of 1930, an Apple wholesaler disposed of an Apple surplus by selling them on credit to the unemployed, who would resell them for a nickel each, leading briefly to shivering Apple sellers everywhere. Hoover responded to a question about these men by saying, many people have left their job for the more profitable one of selling apples. <laughs> so that was the president when unemployment was at 25%. Um, so uh, I don't know why I read that, except that um, it's because it's, it's ridiculous. I just imagine Herbert Hoover alone in this dark room eating a seven course meal during the I know, profession. he would like more tales. I mean, it wasn't like, it was just, it was, you know, and, and this guy was like considered sort of a genius. Um, and when he was elected in 28. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, things, things were really bad. And, um, and, you know, we had a, uh, I think when in 2008 you saw, it wasn't as bad. In 2008 right. and um, because because when Hoover when Hoover was doing that um, that was I guess at 31 or 32 there had already been several years of a recession and then a, and then a total collapse so the reset the depression happened in two parts it was started in 29 with the stock market crash which threw the country into a recession and then 1930 the recession got worse 31 there was a uh, then th that that was just kind of a stock market crash and some problems you know the drop in demand right but in 31 there was a, a, a banking collapse in Austria which kind of that was sort of the Lehman Brothers moment when the whole global banking system just, just cratered. Right. And from 31 onward, that's when you really started seeing a spiral downward. And then, so by the time, you know, this is 32, it's been three years of just total misery. But in right. 2008, you had had, there were some indications there were serious problems in late 2006, um, which is when a lot of the non-bank financial, uh, non-bank mortgage originators, the sleazy guys in Southern California and Orlando that were just lending anyone, they went out of business in late 2006. Right. It took about a year for that to really hit the financial system. And Lehman Brothers was in, in um, I guess it was like September of, of 2008. And so the, 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 the panic and the fear was rich and thick, but as Obama was running, but the real collapse in in jobs and the real growth in unemployment didn't 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 really start until uh, Obama was almost in office. Well, so it was different. So did we learn our lesson from the Great Depression, like in terms of even band aid solutions of? Yeah, like, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what. Complete. It depends on the lesson, right? So there, there's don't you? I mean, we we got to be careful about using technocratic rhetoric, like oh, it worked or learned a lesson or something, right? Because right? like this is just a question of values, right? Right. The lesson that Ben Bernanke and Tim Geithner learned was not how to stop a depression, it was how to stop a new deal, right? So what, what FDR did when he came into office in um, 33, and Hoover said to him, I'll turn over, you know, there was, I guess, five months between election and inauguration. We've shortened that since then. So inauguration used to take place in March, election right. in November. And there was this horrible slide into an even worse depression in that time, and Hoover refused to do anything about the depression even after he had lost and was still president. And he kept demanding from FDR, you know, give up this crazy New Deal idea and I'll turn over power early. And FDR kept saying no. Um, well, uh, that, um, what FDR did when he did take power is he shut down the banking system for a few days, a bank holiday. And then he had kind of in, in bank examiners go and just shut down the banks that were corrupt. Right. And he put people on trial. They put Andrew Mellon on trial. So Patman impeached him and then put Mellon, FDR put Mellon on tax on trial for tax fraud, which is, this is a chapter in the book is that trial was amazing. Right. Um, 
and actually I had a really I had a really hard time tracking down the transcript because all those records got shredded weirdly. Interesting. Um, yeah, and then the one of the judges who was a New Deal judge um, made a copy of this ten thousand page transcript and donated it to the National Archives. And so eventually I found the the transcript, but not in the tax court records in the gift section. And it was really weird because it was like on the one end. By the way, Andrew Mellon's records are private. Um, not not his treasury records, but his personal records are private. So you right. can't get access to those unless you get permission from the Andrew Mellon Foundation. Which I'm sure you didn't. didn't I, did, I didn't get. <laughs> um, but um, but then, so his records are private. And uh, and this this trans trial transfer was shredded. But a new dealer who was a judge, most of the judges were actually had been appointed by Mellon in the 20s. And they were still, they were judging Mellon in the 30s. Wow. For tax fraud. But eventually, like, FDR started appointing more and more judges during this tax trial, which which dragged on until 37. And one of them kept the transcript and gave it to the archive. So that's how I got a transcript. That is fascinating. Um, yeah. Oh, um, no, the fight over history is like, it's real, right? <laughs> like Mellon was trying to hide this stuff and this guy, Judge Bolin, was trying to make sure it was there. Right. Um, anyway, so uh, FDR really used the uh, crisis to restructure power, right? So he attacked the, um, the kind of robber barons that the money changers, what he, what he called them, the money changers, who had been irresponsible and, and had destroyed democracy, right? right. They, what he called the in, informal economic government of the United States. Right. Um, and did that through a whole bunch of different mechanisms. Antitrust was one of them, but there were regulatory policies, there were laws, there was, you know, tax, there were trials. I mean, they put bankers on trial. Right. Um, and, uh, and then went after the robber barons and their relationships with Nazi Germany because they had cartels, right? So Alcoa and Standard Oil, they had cartel arrangements. And that's something your book mentions too, that uh, people like Mellon actually looked up to Mussolini in the 30s. Yeah, so so in the, it's funny because in 28, like Andrew Mellon, Secretary of the Treasury, very powerful and influential, the like waning days of the, of the campaign and he gets on like national radio and just gives a speech about how the Republicans are like Mussolini, which will give you prosperity, and the Democrats are like the Soviets who will like destroy prosperity. And it's just like amazing, right? This guy, like... He gave Mussolini in the 20s the best like deal with the interwar debts. He gave it, it was better than any other democracies. And he was self-dealing in office. It was amazing. He makes right. Trump look like a piker. Um, you know, kind of chef's kiss respect to that. Um, anyway, so so when Obama um, came into power, like what, what Geithner and Bernanke and Obama were trying to do was to try to change as little as possible in terms right. of power hierarchies, right? So they had this... You know, whenever you have a financial crisis, it usually means it's just always the same thing. It's basically it's people gambling with other people's money. That's really all it is. Right. right. And they, they dress it up with all this technical jargon. But that's what it is. And also one thing you'll know, kind of notice in the book, there's always two things that seem to accompany financial crises. One is uh, too much borrowing. Mm-hmm. And the uh, three, actually, too much borrowing. The, the second is Citibank. Citibank always seems to be involved. <laughs> and the third is Florida real estate. So there's always seems to be Florida real estate involved. <laughs> yeah, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, um, but uh, I grew up in Miami, and it, it makes a lot of sense for some reason. <laughs> um, so anyway, so when they came in in the in the uh, 2000 2008 nine, you know, you're you're gonna in a financial crisis, you're gonna have to figure out how to allocate the losses because you can't right. pay back all the debt. And what FDR did is he was basically like, we're gonna share the losses. So the we're gonna restructure power, and everybody's gonna eat a little bit, but like. We're going to be a much more equal society, and right. then from that lower base of economic activity, they grew. The country grew really, really rapidly. Right, right? and that's how. That's basically what the New Deal was, um, and and re- build a whole bunch of public institutions. A lot of the institutions that we have today, the SEC and the you know the um, the modern um, kind of like Federal Reserve, the CFTC, right. A lot of a lot of, a lot of regulatory. Exist. Yeah, they exist because they were built then to deal with that. So what Obama did um, is. Uh, they they just said all the losses are going to go onto the middle class in the form of foreclosures and student debt. Why did they do that? Um, well, the reason is because they believed. So they had been taught that um, that the way that you address problems. Um, so so in the nineteen seventies, they said there was all these financial crises, right? So so I, I tell this story, this intellectual story of like the fights with Pat between Patman and bankers in the fifties and sixties and seventies, and then I tell the story of the the corporatist left and then the Chicago school, uh, and then I also tell a story of a collapse of the train system in the seventies, Penn Central, which mm-hmm. was like a, when financialization started hitting the real economy. It was kind of the first round of private equity, and then you saw a number of bankruptcies. It was Penn Central, Bank, Franklin National Bank, the bankruptcy of New York City, Chrysler. Um, Con Ed, 
um, Lockheed, like there were a whole bunch of, of, of there was a crisis in corporate America. And what, you know, unlike the 1930s where people were like, okay, we got a bunch of crises. What we're going to do is we're going to decentralize power, build public institutions. Right. In the 1970s, coming from the kind of politics of affluence and the Chicago school frame, they said, okay, well, the answer to any of these problems is to concentrate power and wealth and do what Teddy Roosevelt would have been, would have done, which was to to uh, have a, a public regulators on top of concentrated wealth. Right. Sort of kind of centralization versus decentralization. And so when you centralize, and you, you, sent, you, you often, it's not always the case, you don't have to do it this way, but like the, essentially the, the deal was centralize and overlay technocrats on top of that. So right. if you look at, it wasn't just the bailouts, right? Look at Obamacare or look at Dodd-Frank. That was about solidifying the power of big insurance companies, but then putting a regulatory overlay on top of them. It's right. a kind of weird Marxist solution, or, re or large banks and putting a regulatory overlay on top of them. It's just like, and um, so, so Robert Jackson, who was a New Dealer, is a character in the book. He said, um, "What the what the capitalist supports." He's talking about centralization. He says, "What the, what the capitalist supports because of his greed, the extreme socialist or communist supports because of his creed." Right. So it's a, a function of centralization. Like we right. know better. Right. Right. I, like Google, you know, organize the world's information. Right. This, this sort of sense. I know better for you than you know. Whether for it's public or private, a concentration of power. Yeah. So right. so these guys, you know, in the 1970s, the Democrats and the Republicans were like, OK, concentrate power and put a technocratic overlay on top of that. And we'll do well. The technocrats will disagree, like the right wing technocrats and the left wing te technocrats disagree about what to think about. But that was sort of the gist of what they thought. And. Um, and the, the, so you have all these private regulators in the economy from banks to, you know, now we have social media giants. So by the time, um, 2008 comes around, like the, the Clinton administration, like deregulated a ton of different industries and globalized everything, um, which we're now going to be paying for. Thank you, Bill Clinton. Um, but, but it, it and it was a disaster, Yeah. But, but what they didn't realize, the Clinton people didn't realize is that, um, it's just how bad. They, how, how dangerous what they had done was because there was a financial bubble. And so it looked like, um, like, um, you know, discretionary income was going up. Right. But that was masking the deterioration and underlying health. They didn't know that though. But, and I didn't, you know, a lot of people didn't see it. Right. Like everything is great in the late nineties. Like everybody's getting rich, but also like poor people are getting rich. Like it looked great. Right. There so, were these hidden structural yeah, problems. But, but right. it was like masked by just the dot-com boom and like, too much spending on telecom infrastructure and stuff like that. It was not masked in like a lot of rural areas. Rural areas were doing badly. Uh, this was why you saw the red-blue split starting then. But uh, so the people that came in, in the Obama administration, and then it all collapsed under Bush, but like the Clinton people were like, oh, that's just Bush's fault. That's not our fault, right? Um, so in 2008 and nine, when Bush looks like an idiot and Obama comes in, he brings in like the Clinton people. And also that's like the last like 30 years of, of Watergate babies, right? Right. Um, in Congress, too, like a lot of the major pieces of policy that Obama passed went through committees that were chaired by Watergate babies or people that were kind of Watergate baby-like, you know, like Chris Dodd and Barney Frank and George Miller, those kinds of people. Right. Um, th those people, actually, not just those kinds. Those are actual the people. <laughs> um, so uh, so anyway, so that um, um, so these guys come in, they believe like we are good technocrats. We are smart. We are experts. Listen to the experts and put more power in their hands and then they can fix things. Right. And that's the way that they thought about the world. And yeah, there was like greed and yeah, there was corruption, but there's always greed and corruption and well-meaning stuff. And what I think is different about my explanation for what happened in the crisis, because the book really comes from my trying to figure out where, why did they do all this stuff? Like yeah. it seemed really bad, but they right. did it anyway. It's not, it, they didn't do it because they were paid off. They did it because they thought it was the right thing to do. Right. And so I was like, and that, cause that's so much like, People often will be like, oh, you're so naive, Matt. Like, how do you, you know, like, they were really greedy. It's, it, it's a it conspiracy. Was, right, right. And it was like, people, right. no, in fact, it's actually a lot scarier yeah. if they actually did it because for well-meaning reasons. <laughs> like, it's much harder. If it was just bribery, then all you have to do is stop the bribery. It wasn't just bribery. It right. was really a failure of ideas. And millions of, of, of Americans, millions, tens of millions of Democrats love Obama. They love the, the leaders that did this stuff because, because it really is a problem of ideas. So right. that's kind of like my basic view of, of, what, of what happened. And we're rediscovering kind of these old school populist notions of how to run a political economy and what private power means. That's what I wanted to ask you about. So for those hoping for a new New Deal that didn't happen after the recession, 
if you look at the electoral map for like FDR's first two elections, it's all blue. I think like 48 out of 50 states voted for FDR. He had a clear mandate to get shit done. Right. But that doesn't seem like that's necessarily the case now. Do you think, A, that coalition is needed? And two, if it is, how does it happen? So Woodrow Wilson in 1912 did not have a majority, but he did enormously, like basically the New Deal would have happened under Wilson, although it would have been way more racist, um, <laughs> except it was interrupted by World War I. So, so Woodrow Wilson broke up AT&T. He passed the Federal Trade Commission Act. He passed the Federal Reserve Act. Um, he passed the Clayton Act, uh, banned child labor, like did a whole bunch of stuff that was really important, um, put Brandeis on the Supreme Court. But then World War One interrupted, and World War One was like basically inconceivably important, right? The stock market shut down for six months, right? right. And World War One broke. So it's like you don't need an overwhelming majority to govern, right? But FDR um, didn't just win in '32, right? The Democrats actually took the majority in 1930 in Congress. Then they won in '32 the presidency and um, and Congress. Re- remember Obama won the presidency and Congress in 2008 with an overwhelming amount of senators and congressmen. Right. They just fucked it up. Right. So in when FDR did a good job in 34, they crushed the Republicans again. And then they won re-election in 36 and crushed the Republicans even more. So it's like there basically wasn't a Republican Party in 36. Right. And the reason is because the Democrats had done a good job. And I think that like that's it's we underestimate what it means politically to just do a good job in government. And so right. to give you a sense, like in 32, blacks didn't vote for FDR. They voted for Hoover. And the reason is because blacks had, were the, they voted for the party of Lincoln, right? Because mm-hmm. the Democrats were super racist. They were the party of the KKK. Right. But in 34, the black vote switched to FDR, right? And that's when the black vote switched because black people in the North, in the Midwest where they could vote, they were like, okay, this... This actually, you know, there was some outreach from the FDR people, but also they were like, this is more what we want than what the Republicans were right. offering, right? So that wasn't like because they ran them. We, we argue a lot about messaging, right? But like FDR and the Democrats prior to the 1970s, they were like, we're going to deliver. We're right. going to deliver policy. We're going to deliver things through our government. And that's how we're going to get reelected. There's a quote in your book. I think it's, I forgot who it's from, but I'm paraphrasing. It's like, uh, we understand a need and we lent a hand, but these new politicians understand an image and they lend a smile. Yeah, that's right. That was that was Studs Terkel about Reagan. And I think that's like so I mean, even even the way we talk about corruption is so fucked up because people are like, oh my gosh, this politician is just doing that to get reelected. It's like so that's what they should be, you know, in some sense that's what they should be doing. Right. The like, incentives have to just right. be right. Yeah, yeah, you just like, oh my God, he's only taking care of farmers because he's trying to win their votes. It's like so, right? Like I mean you know, like, I, I, you know, I'm not, I mean, like, there's a difference between taking money from powerful interests and doing their bidding and, like, trying to get the votes of ordinary people by doing good things for ordinary people, right? Yeah, That's yeah, the yeah. point of a democracy. And it's like, there's such, you know, like, Clinton named her book, like, Hard Choices. And Obama was, like, obsessed with making, like, difficult choices and hurting people. Being right. like, That's political courage. And it's like... That, it's that's such a fucked up way to think about politics. Like politics is about helping people, right? And then power is a good thing if you use it to help people. So right. we should be using power through our government to help people and to make us, to, to have us as a free society, right. right? That's what we should do. And if we do that, we should get reelected. And if we don't, we shouldn't, right? right. And that's, I think, like the point of democracy. And that cuts against, like, if you look at all the, like, good government groups from the 1970s on with, like, Common Cause, the goo-goo groups, they don't believe that. They don't believe in politics. They're, like, basically authoritarian, right? They, like, put on this good government, like, patina, but they're good, they're authoritarian. Like, they're just like, no, 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 like, let us regulate everything. And it's really annoying, right? And and really problematic. Sorry, I don't know why I'm I'm getting into this. Like, the problem with our politics right now is not Common Cause. But I'm just saying, like, no, in the I mean, 70s, it, it was. to a larger issue, and I think even regular people don't have the faculties and the infrastructure to participate in democracy, like, whether it's a local level or not. I think that there's a wholesale, like, just, I hate to say giving up on it, but, like, not willing to put the work in. To well, govern. I mean, why would you? It's not, I think it's a very rational choice to be apathetic. Because right. it's like, 
Look, I, I have really serious problems with like with Democratic voters. I think they made just horrible decisions and they've been reckless and irresponsible. But I also kind of like I recognize where they are and right. I'm not I mean, I don't like it. It just is what it is. Um, but uh, but but I, th I think that people like, you know, the best movie about politics is is the movie Election. Right. With, yes. With Matthew um, Broderick. Matthew Broderick. And, yeah. And um, uh, and, it, and is this is this is amazing moment when the. It's about a high school presidential election, right? And like one of the candidates gets up and just gives a speech in favor of apathy, and she's like, "Who cares about this stupid election? We're just using it to like get into college, so like put it on a resume, like, right? So vote for me because I don't want to go to college. Fuck these guys!" Like that was, and everyone was just like, "That's awesome, right?" And she's like, "I'll just cancel the election if I'm elected. I'm not going to do anything." And right. it was like so great, and um, and I I kind of feel like that's. The way that's the relationship that so many Americans have to our political institutions. It's certainly the relationship that I feel towards our political institutions. And I worked in Congress for six years. I know a lot of politicians, um, and I like a lot of them, and I, I feel a lot of affection for our Congress and for our political institutions. But you know, Brandeis said it: um, if if you want people to respect the law, you have to make the law respectable, right? right? And that that's this, this straight up like laws right now are suggestions for the powerful. Right. Exactly. And that is the problem. And it's like the moment somebody gets up and says, we're putting the handcuffs on you, Mark Zuckerberg, or we're putting the handcuffs on you, you know, Eric Schmidt or whoever, whoever it is, we're going to put the handcuffs on you. And we're going to actually change the way that who is in charge. Like Daniel Ellsberg said, courage is contagious. You, I think you will see an electric yeah. charge and just a total catalytic change in our culture because people are hungry. They're desperate for that. That reminds me, there's a part in your book where you describe that Democrats in the 1930s, uh, the establishment ones, used prohibition as this like the biggest issue that during the depression when, right. when unemployment is like 25%, right. all they wanted to talk about was prohibition and it, it does... The wets and the dries. It reminds me a lot of the kind of bullshit debates that we're having now that it almost seems like people use as a, a smokescreen. It's the to, same to thing. Distract. I mean, it is the same thing. It's just that we're, they were way more racist in the 20s, right? <laughs> um, in the 19, um, in, the, in the, like, the Democrats had been the party of, uh, of populism from like William Jennings Bryan, really 1890s until uh, the 1920. And then Woodrow Wilson's total failure to manage World War One well, uh, led to the, the Democrats and also Andrew Mellon financing a huge campaign against the Treaty of Versailles. Like, this was a totally fascinating change after World War One. but like, they basically just destroyed the Democratic Party. And in 1924, this party that had fought against banks and J.P. Morgan and, and monopolies, um, the main issue was whether to endorse the KKK or not. Uh, and they ended up going, not like to denounce the KKK. They ended oh, okay. up, the KKK ended up winning. Right. Um, and that was a social issue, right? Social issue, quote unquote. And then prohibition was a huge issue. And they nominated a J.P. Morgan attorney in 24. And in um, 1928, they nominated Al Smith, who was on the payroll of the DuPonts. Payroll. I mean, like, they right. were just giving him money. He was governor of New York, but, like, John Jacob Raskop, who was a DuPont guy, was literally just putting money in his bank account. Right. Um, not funding his campaign, just giving him personally money, right? Right. And... Uh, and he just got crushed by Hoover. Actually, Hoover got endorsed by both the Chamber of Commerce and the AFL in 28. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that's funny. Chicken in every pot will abolish, abolish poverty. Really one of the all-time um, <laughs> mismatches in terms of campaign rhetoric. Um, but in 32, what you did, you saw this bitter fight. Um, and I go into this in, in uh, Goliath. We saw a bitter fight between FDR uh, and... And then the rest of the party, the, the kind of big utility magnates, the bankers that had been funding the party. Right. And they, they got, they eventually kind of got behind Al Smith. And, uh, but there were a whole bunch of other candidates that were also kind of establishment. It was very similar to this, this campaign actually versus Bernie. And the people were behind FDR. But they, the Cordell Hall, who was a Tennessee progressive, was fighting against the DNC, which was trying to steal the nomination for Al Smith. I mean, it was crazy, like the same thing. Um, and he was just like, look, you know this this economy this this uh, election has to be fought on the economy, not on prohibitions. Prohibition right. is a sideshow. Exactly. And Al Smith was like, nope, we should we should fight on prohibition and um, and get rid of the antitrust laws. And the the strategy of, with of Raskoff and Smith was, you know, they looked at the uh, last realignment election of 1896, um, and 
they said in that election there was there'd been a depression in 1893 the the business community decided to get behind big business behind the republicans and now it's 1932 the republicans are in disarray it's our opportunity to get the big business donors onto our side right and then we'll govern the country based on what the big business donors want but it'll be through the, Dem the democrats not the republicans and what fdr said is no that's a bad strategy and that's an immoral strategy. What we need to do is get the people on our side and be the Democratic Party that fights against big business. Right. And that will be the, the framework. Anyway, I, I don't want to we, we go on forever, but like the book is Goliath, The Hundred Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. And I spent years on it. So I, I tried to make it fun to read. I didn't want it to be a, a memo. Well, let so. me ask you before uh, we end the interview, the Nevada caucus is today. The Democratic mm -hmm. primaries are looming large. Are there any candidates that you think uh, best exemplify the tradition that you extensively talk about in Goliath? Yeah, I mean, I think Bernie is probably the most. I mean, he's a populist. So you're not a, you're not a Bloomberg fan. Uh, I you know, <laughs> Bernie used to carry around Wright Patman's banking committee hearings in the '70s. He used to go around Vermont and actually carry. Interesting. His, yeah, no, his hearings, his um. Uh, not not here's but record or reports on chain banking be like this is how concentrated the banking system is those patent stuff so it's this is like a direct link i think warren is also uh, a populist um she's kind of has not messaged herself as a populist in this yeah. campaign which has been you know at least for me it's been disappointing but she definitely has brought back a lot of populism in the policy realm and i think like bloomberg is like really interesting because he he represents melanism Right. right in the Democratic Party, it's like it's it's not. I mean, the self-dealing, which is, will be fairly obvious with with uh, Bloomberg's um, company, just the the you know in Mellon in in the twenties when he was appointed to be the Secretary of the Treasury, was running the IRS and the Fed. People were saying, "Oh, he's too rich to be bought." That's right. literally Bloomberg's <laughs> message, right? He's a human public utility, right? That's this literally the same thing, right? And I think, and it's a little different because because Bloomberg is the seventh richest man in the country, and Andrew Mellon was the third. So I guess in that sense, it's like different. Right. But um, so it's totally fascinating. And I think that like you know, and and did the Duponts were backing John Jacob Roscob, um, and the Duponts were one of the wealthiest families in the country. So so it, in for the Democratic primary. So it's like the one thing that's a little different about Bloomberg is that um, he is a. Uh, He's running for president. He's not just behind the guy running for president. Right. right. So that's the, the, in America, we're like usually not that tacky that we've had billionaires just do it directly. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know. That's what's so on. interesting to me. It's so absurdly uh, not subtle, I guess you could say. Yeah. No. And I, lo I love it. I love the race because it's just, everything just becomes explicit. Right. And it's just like, Bernie is just explicit. Like, we're going to change the democratic establishment. And right. Bloomberg is just like, I'm just going to buy this. Right. And it's like the whole, you know, the and facade. then you have all these fights about yeah. race and, and gender and like, yeah, the facade is just stripped away and it's just raw. Like we're going to debate about whether we're going to have a democracy or not. I agree. So. For better or worse, I think 2020 is going to be a reckoning, maybe more so than 2016. I agree with that. I agree with that. I'm, I mean, I'm just going to say like, I think the coronavirus is, um, we're going to see some really serious consequences from the relationship of coronavirus to the way that we've set up our economy in the last 25 years. So it, that's a whole another thing, but I wanted to say it because it's like 1932, the election was about the collapse of our productive system. Right. And I, I wouldn't rule that out. Right. right. Well, Matt, thanks for being here. This is a great interview. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Unspeakable. It'd mean the world to me if you could follow my podcast on Spotify or subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts. For more info, visit theunspeakablepod.com.